maybe they are the brand and then okay if they are the brand what do they need what platforms do they need to monetize if they want to design welcome to positive find us on twitter at posi the number two ive this bi-weekly podcast is for active investors and founders just like you focused on venture scale positive impacts I'm your host, Zach Len, an angel investor in the private capital markets here in sunny SoCal. Today's guest is Haley Quaite Zolo, a principal VC with Starting Line Ventures headquartered in Chicago. This episode will include three sections. First, network and venture. Next, sustainable products. And last, the 99%. Welcome to the show, Haley. Thanks. Excited to be here. I'm excited to have you. You have such an awesome um, presence. You're such a nice person. It's really always a pleasure to, <laughs> ch- to chat with you. We met on Twitter uh, maybe a month or two, and I've been looking forward to the show. I, I-, I was wondering, could you tell our listeners um, about yourself and kind of how you got into this uh, VC impact sphere? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm originally from Cleveland, Ohio, and I went to school in Indiana. I did undergrad in accounting and finance, so got that you know business uh, foundation. And then I moved to Chicago about ten years ago. I was uh, started out you know in the corporate world. I was at KPMG doing uh, financial you know diligence for M and A activities, mergers and acquisitions for mainly private equity funds. I was there for a couple of years, you know, it was a really great way just to get super in the weeds of technical, um, you know, Excel modeling and just data fun craziness. And then uh, quickly realized that, you know, my my future wasn't really cut out to be somewhere like that long term. And I started dating my now husband who was early on at Grubhub here in Chicago. And he was one of the first employees. He was going and launching new markets and we'd go on dates. And he was just telling me these really amazing stories about the startup ecosystem and the grind and the hustle. And I was like, oh my gosh, this sounds so cool. I need to, you know, figure this out. How do I get into this world? So I started researching and fell into an opportunity at a startup here in Chicago called Trunk Club. And at the time, you know, they were just getting started. The business was putting uh, personalized clothing and apparel recommendations into a box via stylist and sending them around the country. We also had clubhouses and I just really fell in love with the mission and uh, getting to work somewhere earlier stage um, in fashion, which is a huge passion of mine, which I'll probably get into uh, later on in the conversation, but came on as a super early employee there. We were uh, growing really quickly. The business was just growing exponentially and the team I was on was strategy and data analytics. So we are more or less these internal consultants across the organization. And this was about, I don't know, eight years ago. So this was before there was Shopify and there weren't 3PLs and we were doing a lot of the things in-house. So got a ton of exposure really quickly into all the cross-functional departments of the business. And about a year after I joined, we got acquired by Nordstrom. So that was incredible to to really be part of the journey, you know, throughout that acquisition and uh, got to help launch the whole women's line there. Front Club started for just men and uh, we were able to then, you know, with the partnership of Nordstrom, start selling to women. So that was kind of like a startup in a startup. It was such a fun time to be there. Took that out of a Google sh- Google sheet and into a full-fledged part of the business. And um, after about three years there, I was really, you know, thinking through what's next. I loved building. Getting to be part of that women's launch was was really, really rewarding. And I wanted to go earlier stage. So I... I took an opportunity at a at an earlier stage consumer startup here in Chicago called Mac and Mia. They were a very very similar concept to Trunk Club, but for children. We were doing uh, newborn clothing all the way up to ten years old, 
and uh, had stylists across the country. And I was able to leverage a lot of what I had learned into that early stage environment. Came on as like the fifth employee. Um, so saw, you know, firsthand the, the highs and lows that come along with building. We raised uh, a good amount of venture capital. And after an exit there, about two and a half years later, I was at this crossroads, right? Where I was like, all right, do I go operate again? Uh, do I go maybe start my own company? Or venture capital was always something in the horizon that was kind of like my dream end state, but I had no real plan for how to get there. And uh, serendipitously, I had reconnected with Ezra Galston, who was the founder of Starting Line. And he had left a, another early stage VC here in Chicago, um, who were investors of the of the startup I had just left. And I heard, you know, that he was leaving to start his own fund uh, called Starting Line and had just started investing in companies. And we just started grabbing coffee. And I was just completely obsessed with his vision for the, the fund that he wanted to build here in Chicago. And I convinced him to bring me on board as the first full-time employee and have been here um, over a year and a half now. It's been a blast so far getting into the venture ecosystem. Wow. They are so lucky to have you. I mean, your energy and your experience in, in startups and your passion for your work is just t totally infectious. And I know people are going to just love this episode. And um, yeah, I would love to hear more. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing that. I would love to hear more about the um, about the the fund and kind of what the core focus is currently. Yeah, absolutely. So we like to think of ourselves as the consumer VC for the 99%. And, you know, how we explain that is we get really excited about products or technology or marketplaces that are tech enabled that are ultimately creating an entire new category that has never existed before or providing means to just democratize access to the everyday consumer. We get really excited about products that are figuring out a way to kind of refactor the supply chain or the unit economics to make it cheaper and better for customers to have access to those products. So, you know, the lens that we think through is, you know, who is the end consumer? Are they kind of the consumer on Main Street that is that is the everyday person? And how is the company or startup thinking about building into that that demographic. So the, the portfolio is pretty broad and happy to start sharing some examples and get into that. But um, we're, we're early stage. You know, we think about, you know, starting line, the name is we like to be like the first institutional money into a business, you know, at the seed round. Typically, Amazing. some of these businesses, they've raised a little bit of friends and family or angel capital, um, which I know is a big piece of what, what you focus on earlier yeah. on. And uh, we, we love building relationships with founders as early on as possible and, and really get them to the place that they're ready to get that first seed round of capital. And typically, we write pretty large checks. We like to lead that seed round. So mm -hmm. typical check size for us is about 70000 to a million into like a million seed round. That's amazing. And do you see a lot of your startups go through the, the pre-seed route or are you seeing some that kind of skip from accelerator right into seed rounds? It varies, honestly. I think it depends on, on the type of company and how much capital they really need to get it off the ground. So there are some that kind of skip those steps and we have invested in some pre-seed before. Um, so it kind of runs the gamut, honestly. I think the, the ecosystem just evolving really, really quickly. And it's been specifically interesting over the past year with the pandemic that the doors are open, right? We can connect yes. completely remotely. We're investing in founders that we've never met in person and processes are going pretty quickly and they're getting hyper competitive. So I think that if we spot the right founding team 
in a category that maybe we have a thesis about or we've been really searching for, we're, we're re- really ready to move and, and sometimes make those decisions really quickly. That's fantastic. Well, I think we could probably move into the first section on the network and venture. And firstly, I just wanted to say it was really kind of you to be open to a conversation having met on Twitter. It it just happened organically. And here we are in this interview. This is really fun. <laughs> I love it. Well, fun fact, um, I shouldn't admit this, but I didn't have a Twitter until I got into venture oh. capital. Oh, I you, got have, it, like, you have to. It's required. <laughs> I know. It was my first day. And Ezra's like, you need a Twitter. And um, I wasn't like living under a rock, right? I was on the other social channels and my husband's obsessed with Twitter. So I just personally didn't have one, but now I totally understand the value of it. And yes, it led me to relationships like you, like yours. Yes, absolutely. And to the relationships part, can you tell me how um, the, the aspect of relationships has helped you from the standpoint of developing relationships with founders early stage, getting meetings that are maybe not necessarily from the, the normal channels like warm intros or even cold intros? what How do relationships tie into the network and venture in your mind? Yeah, I love that question. And it's, it's candidly something that until getting on this side of the table, I didn't understand how powerful relationships are in the world of venture capital. You know, every fund has different dynamics. And when you are thinking about, you know, investing, you sometimes think, oh, like VCs just spend all day like modeling and (laughs) scenarios, right? And, you know, sometimes that is part of it. But so much of our role is really cultivating relationships in um, a couple different like core verticals. So certainly across, you know, VC to VC, that's a really big uh, part of where we're building those relationships. When you think about where does deal flow come from? You know, as VCs, we're always, you know, sourcing and we're we're meeting founders. But as funds, we can't invest in every conversation we ever have, right? So we're always trying to figure out, okay, who are the VCs in our networks? What do they focus on? I have, you know, running Google Docs of, you know, categories and verticals that different VCs um, are passionate about. So that when I come across something that isn't a fit for us, but would be for them, that's like the first note I shoot out is whether they want an introduction. That's a great idea. Yeah, thanks. Um, there's also relationships that we're building with other founders, right? So again, we're not investing in every single founder conversation that we have, but founders are plugged into different circles than we are as VCs, right? They're in founder groups within their local communities. They're part of you know accelerator programs that they came from. There's just a ton that just looks different based on where they're located yep. and the, the the networks and circles that they're part of. So a lot of the deal flow comes from, you know, them, right? Which is just really incredible. You know, sometimes if we we passed on a founder, but they're still we still had a, a strong relationship and added value in other ways, it's it's really cool to start seeing that kind of pay it forward, um, you know, in both ways. And then yeah, I think just overall relationships within the community and the ecosystem. That's something that, you know, it's, again, different in the, the world of the pandemic. A lot of them are happening virtually now, but I'm actually excited about it. I just got off of a call this morning. So there's a group called All Raise. That's all female in venture and founders and uh, just got part of a virtual cohort of, of principals across oh, the VC ecosystem. Yeah. And they were saying that, you know, in the you know, a year ago, this was only something that they were offering out within different cities, and they had to have like a physical presence. And this is the first year that they're saying, hey, uh, we can just start doing this virtually, it doesn't matter. So I'm in a cohort of women 
across the country and really excited to kick that off. Wow. Yeah. The support in this community, in my mind, is just amazing. I, I just can't believe I, I didn't expect how helpful everyone would truly want to be. It's it's in it, it. It feels 100% authentic most of the time. And you said pay it forward. To me, that's that's critical to our success as investors. And frankly, I, f- I believe founders are going to benefit from that same mindset in a very, very non-obvious way. It's it's hard to know how relationships tie into that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's that's something that I've been really mindful of, you know, getting into this world is that, you know, from the outside, when I was operating within startups and we were raising capital, I thought that there was sometimes a lack of transparency into how the venture seek the venture process actually works, right? It just seemed really opaque and confusing and closed doors. And now getting on the other side of it, I'm trying to be really cognizant of opening that access, right? And making myself available and getting on, you know, ask me anything, uh, Zoom sessions and just answering questions. You know, I think that it shouldn't be as hard to access a lot of these types of conversations. So it's been, yeah, a really core focus of mine. And thanks to Twitter, I feel like I continue to get a lot of really cool inbound, um, you know, from different threads and ways that I'm just putting my information out there in the open and getting some really awesome, you know, relationships to come out of that. Yeah, I mean, your your Twitter following is growing rapidly. So I can tell you it's it's <laughs> working. Just keep doing I'm it. Trying. Yeah. And right. I want to give a little bit of um, kind of a presence to the GitHub repo that you're your firm offers. It's kind of like an open source operating manual. It's really cool. Oh, thank you. Yeah, appreciate you bringing that up. And can't really take the credit for that. That was all Ezra's brainchild. But, you know, I think he felt very similarly where there wasn't a, a ton of transparency into the, you know, inside processes that happen behind these closed doors of the venture capital fund. So that was something that he was really intentional about when getting starting line off the ground was was putting that out there. And I can't tell you how many times, you know, we get really thoughtful questions that come from founders and people that reach out to us that uh, haven't did their homework, right? They, they call out, you know, we love that you have this mental health policy or thank you for sharing, you know, exactly how you uh, operate, you know, you lead deals, but we're pre-seed. How do you think about that? And it uh, it really shows that having that that content out there is 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 helping and supporting, you know, the overall uh, like transparency and just access to, to how we think. Yes, absolutely. And just to kind of, I'm I'm pulling it up again here and noting that you have, like you said, in the mental health component quarterly LP letters, kind of how you structure, how we think, getting in touch, mm-hmm. geographic focus, the checks we write. I mean, it's amazing. If you don't mind, I'd really like to kind of like use this as kind of a recommendation to other VCs to have something similar to this. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's what it's out there for. And I think we would love for it to inspire um, a similar playbook for other funds to run. And it, I think, is just going to open the doors, you know, that much faster for, for people to really understand. Um, And a lot of it is just to be more proactive, right? And answering some of these, you know, frequently asked questions so that when we are talking to founders, we really get down to the real conversation, right? Who who they are, why are they building what they're building and kind of get into really the core. I think sometimes those conversations, you can just spend way too much time talking about some of the logistical or high level, how we operate type of things. And those aren't really where a lot of the real conversation happens. So I yeah, agree. please share it. 
I will. Thank you. I will definitely do that. I definitely will. Can I ask you a more difficult question, perhaps? Um, sure. You know, we, we can just go down whatever path you want to feel most comfortable with. But I was thinking about recently how, for example, I think some VCs tend to shy away from getting giving a lot of direct feedback. You as an operator, I imagine, have so much experience to, to share as advice. But I tend to, because I've never scaled a venture backable company, I've worked in startups, but I've never actually raised the capital and, you know, operated it, scaled it that way. I tend to give more feedback. Do you think it's an appropriate place for VCs to give advice, even as portfolio um, investors, when they're not like, for example, on the advisory board? I know it's a technical, difficult question, but I just want to throw it forward to you. Yeah, no, I like that question a lot. And I think it's something that we we really prioritize and try to always be in the mindset of giving tactical and like constructive feedback, you know, especially when we are passing on a certain deal yes. or, a, or a, a, a business that we're looking at, we don't want to make it generic, right? We want to be really specific into our why and how we're processing that. And, you know, we're hopeful that sometimes that, that is a differentiator, right? I think it takes a lot of time to write these really thoughtful, in-depth emails, or sometimes it's over a, a phone conversation or a Zoom. But you know, hoping that that really just one shows like that we put in a lot of time and thought. We're not just you know passively being like, oh, nope, not a fit. Um, but there's a lot of substance to it. And sometimes you know we're doing a lot of diligence, right? We're really scouring the market. We're talking to customers. We're just evaluating a lot of different characteristics. So we want to be, again, transparent. I feel like it's going to be the key word of the whole conversation. Um, But it's true, right? We like to put all of that out there. Um, And as it relates to portfolio companies, absolutely. I think that's something that we think of ourselves as pretty high touch investors. We're a small team, so we're going to have to figure out how does that scale over time, you know, as we get 30 plus portfolio companies. Absolutely. But we we really think about that a lot as we're building relationships with the founders from the earliest days, right? We give our phone numbers out, we're texting them at all hours of the day. Oh my gosh. Wow. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's really fun. And I think to your point on my background, being in operating, I have just so much empathy for where they're at. And I have, I think, the benefit of the hindsight into sometimes what I wish my investors in previous you know, experiences could would have called out or really just been there to be a support system. So I'm really thinking about that all the time and trying to just offer up, you know, proactive, like, hey, um, you know, we're trying to figure out how to scale our marketing spend. Like, I want to get in the weeds and kind of help us build our, our models. Or, hey, like, how do we just become a little bit more of like an outsourced um, data arm, right? These teams that we invest in are really lean. They have so many things on their to-do list. So we like to just be extensions of the team and be resources, but be fluid in how we operate. You know, it's not something that we're going to be doing every single day that there's no way that that we can, you know, manage that, but it kind of comes and goes, right? You know, there's points in time in the businesses, you know, these inflection points where they, they need a little bit more handholding. And then we, we, um, you know, as they build out their team, we, we, we scale back a little bit. So we like to be really fluid, but a hundred percent. That's, that's exactly how we operate is really being partners to the teams. Excellent. And I, I heard that some, some lead seed investors tend to take board seats. Is that 
how normally things happen with your fund? Yeah, we again are, are again, we're pretty fluid with what the dynamics make sense. But yeah, we have some board seats in our portfolio. We also have some board observer seats. And what, what, we, we what like the difference between those two things, I, I have to ask. Yeah, it comes down to just some of the the legal pieces around like voting rights and and some of that. Um, there's a kind of a different set of permissioning. But typically, when you think about a board meeting, um, we we have most of them quarterly with our portfolio companies, and the board member and the board observers are both in the room. So a lot of times that part of it doesn't change. Sometimes there's different uh, sections that are just for the members where they're voting on different pieces of the business, but for the most part. They're, they're kind of similar roles, right? You're, you're there, you're, you're part of the conversation and supporting uh, a lot of the, the highest level decisions within the business and, you know, how they're, how they're thinking about the, the financial plan and budgeting and hires to make and all of that is, is a lot of the top conversation topics. Thank you for sharing, sharing this. This is really valuable. Um, I, I think maybe try to move it more in the direction of your personal passion and, and break out into section two with sustainable products. You you mentioned fashion. Can you tell us more about kind of that interest and in, in how it ties into your current focus? Yeah, absolutely. So I could t- literally talk about this all day. Uh, okay, here okay. we go. Really, really that's a passion. Ep- that's guy. episode two. You have to le- <laughs> you have to leave the audience uh, waiting. <laughs> yeah. I actually wrote a blog post right when I got into venture that goes into a little bit more history behind this. We'll share that in the show notes. Okay. Yeah, for sure. I, um, I don't know. I just grew up just really being into fashion and shopping. I think I can't even, one of my earliest memories was like walking into a Nordstrom store. So when I touched on how Trunk Club got acquired by Nordstrom, that was just literally a dream. I remember like when that news came out, I was like floating. I was like, what is happening in my life right now? This is so cool. And, you know, I don't know where it comes from. I think my mom's a big shopper, my grandpa was, and it's just something that I thought about, you know, within self-expression. And it was just something I was, for better or for worse, kind of addicted to, you know, what you hear about like retail therapy. Um, yeah. So, you know, it's sometimes dangerous. But anyways. It was yep, something, right. Yeah. Right. Like, like anything that gives too much endorphins, I suppose. <laughs> exactly. Right. Um, it was just in my DNA. So again, like tying it back to the Trump Club opportunity, when I found that hybrid of using something I was passionate about outside of work, but then marrying that with my actual skill set, it was just the light bulb went off into like, wow, this is really what it means to not feel like work is a job, but actually something that is enjoyable. And it's wonderful. Yeah, I think that I just carried that thread through. So that, you know, of course, led me to Mac and Mia, which was a similar concept for children. Um, learned a lot about, you know, the children's uh, apparel world. But as I joined Venture and within this consumer context, I've been really, really interested in just understanding, like, what is the next generation of e-commerce look like? You know, when you look back in the past 10 years, there was the Trunk Club, there was Stitch Fix, there's Real Real, there's Run the Runway, right? There's all of these really big names. And those were more or less models, right? They were completely refactoring what it means to do rental at scale or do resale at scale. So I've been particularly passionate about understanding how the consumer trends are evolving and again, going back to the pandemic, right? I'm sure everyone's seen the same chart with 
the penetration of e-commerce that happened in the past year, right? Yeah, it, it's like, surprising. It's gone up, insane. what, 2x or something? Yeah, you know. 2x or so. Right. Or... It, it's grown at a, at a rate that took 10 years to get to. Um, so we, oh <laughs> we did that in the past, I don't know, six to nine months. So I think we're at a, a really cool point in time right now where these these trends are accelerating in so many different ways. And I am just spending a lot of time paying attention <laughs> into how people are shopping and how are they ultimately um, discovering new products. So, you know, on top of this like fashion, fashion, <laughs> I um, kind of think about it within the lens of personalization. And again, you know, taking the playbook from Trunk Club and Macamia, those models were at its core personalized. You came on <laughs> to the service, you took a style quiz. We got all of this really rich information about who you were, your sizing, colors you liked, mm -hmm. patterns you liked. And that's how we, with some, you know, real people doing it, but also some data recommendations, that's how we personalize, you know, what we sent to you in a box. And exactly. I think there's so many different categories that that model is applicable to. I think within food and beverage, you know, where everything right now is online, e-commerce uh, delivery for grocery is this expanding category. And, you know, of course, there's the massive players like Instacart, but that still takes time to figure out, okay, well, what are the recipes I'm going to make this week? Okay, I have to go pick and choose all the different ingredients and they get delivered. But I think that my, my, my hunch is that there's going to be this next gen of these personalized marketplaces that are food and bev centric that figure out what your tastes are, uh, what your health trend is, you know, of the month. Everyone is always changing, whether it's Whole30 or keto or uh, no carbs. So I'm really excited about other categories to apply personalization to. And then um, sustainability is another really big one. So I think that's yeah. another topic we should dig into. But that's a lens that I'm thinking through within the next wave of, of e-commerce businesses is understanding what are they doing that is sustainable? I think everyone's trying to claim that they're organic products or uh, better materials, but I'm really trying to unpack what that truly means and, and get into the, the real innovation that some of these brands are starting to to have, you know, uh, it's an interesting train of thought here. This idea that personalization may may um, maybe kind of reduce the the demands for transparency almost in the sense that if a I mean, so you have this idea of like the health halo, um, where where brands accentuate the the verbiage and the style stylization that doesn't necessarily equate to anything measurable personalization can in a sense meet in the middle almost between transparency that may be too labor intensive or not as exciting, et cetera, or not as much reputationally linked to the brand. Whereas I think what you're maybe highlighting is kind of where, I don't know if I'm reading into the tea leaves, but it just seems like personalization is, is something that can be um, giving people more access to sustainability, but also I kind of wonder if if there's any reason to like kind of use personalization for kind of a nudge toward it. Yeah, no, I think so. You know, it's like, yeah, broadly personalization is like super buzzy right now. Everyone's like trying to do it. And I think it, I see. There's, there's a lot of different ways to think about it. But that's, yeah, I mean, my mindset is, you know, when you think about 
it's so easy to go on Amazon today, right? And just search for something and get it delivered same day, next day. That's solved mm-hmm. for, right? That's more convenience. That's not personalized, right? You have mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. have something in mind, whether that's a product or a brand, and you have to be typing it into the search bar to find it, right? Same thing that goes with Google, right? And yeah. when I think about personalization, I flip the whole experience on its head. And I think about how do you know brands and how do different experiences and services start to uh, consume data around who we are, whether it's taking it from the back end or you know we're in putting it in, and then leveraging that to just put new products and new uh, experiences right in front of us at the right time. And it's it's so much easier said than done. But I think that that's what I'm bullish on as just next gen commerce is taking the thought out of it for the consumer. You know, even if you go into any like brand's website today, they all more or less look pretty similar, right? You go to the top, there's categories, there's different filtering by price. And it's it's still kind of self-guided, right? You still have to sort through pages upon pages of product. And it takes a lot of time. And I think everyone's time starved. We're pulled in a million different directions. And I think there has to be uh, a new way to just rethink that e-commerce shopping experience. So I get really excited about figuring out who's building into those spaces and um, just getting to play with those products. And, um, you know, there's some themes that we're starting to see. I think the kind of QVC of um, e-commerce is a, is a new one where there's videos and they're interactive. Yeah, yeah. So that's a new trend we're seeing. And influencer style. Influencer, or... Yeah. Uh, you know, TikTok is just, <laughs> I'm reading a book yeah. about it right now because really? okay. I'm trying to just get smarter on how they're What's doing. The book what they're name doing. You, or I will put that in the show notes. Can you recall the book? Yeah. Name yeah. It's right next to me right now. It's called The Attention Factory by Matthew Brennan. Incredible. TikTok yeah. is just insane how it's just creating so much access for people to Wow. Yeah, and it's 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 really creating this uh, creator economy, right? Where anyone is actually able to go viral, you know, from their home, and that is really powerful. So I'm starting to even start trying to unpack that and think about, okay, these creators or these TikTok stars, they're the next faces of these brands, right? Hmm. Instead of getting mm-hmm. paid by a brand, uh, maybe they are the brand, and then okay, if they are the brand, what do they need? What platforms do they need to monetize? If they want to design something, you know, a hoodie, there's platforms now that we're talking to that are enabling the designer to uh, create, you know, from the comfort of their home without understanding manufacturing or supply chain or anything like that. Um, so those are the types of categories. Not not to break out into politics too much here. Again, this show isn't about politics, but I wonder if there's some some sort of uh, unsustainable model that gears itself toward the ninety nine percent, the labor force that that want access to to be able to create their brand and sell their products, but it it's not necessarily serving the sustainability side in that TikTok doesn't have personalization for sustainability. I would love to kind of share how I'm thinking about it because it's it's when you kind of start thinking about it through this context, it actually is more sustainable than 
what used to happen in the past. So I'd love to hear that. <laughs> to kind of walk through it. So I'm such a nerd when it comes to this stuff. But please nerd you, out. This show is all for it. Okay. You know, when you think about how um, department stores rose, right? They're all wholesale agreements with designers. Think about the big fashion houses, right? That were actually designing the clothes to sell into the department store. And a lot of those big fashion houses, they the whole supply chain is was very antiquated, right? There was kind of the elite group of designers at the top and they were designing, you know, twice a year and there was fashion week and they had to physically invest in all the inventory to bring them, you know, and sell into these department stores. And ultimately, you know, they were designing six, 12 months ahead of the time, right? That's how trends started. And then they hit the stores and, you know, customers will buy, but as I'm sure everyone kind of started to pay attention, a lot of times all of that clothing went on sale, right? And it would mm-hmm. go into off price or there's situations, unfortunately, where it got burned, right? Because some of these Indeed. brands, yeah, just cared so much about the integrity of keeping, you know, such a limited supply out there. They didn't want it at off price stores. So I see. That was yeah, just I completely broken. And what's happening now, you know, is department stores, unfortunately, have been really impacted by the pandemic. Everything's going online. And what that means mm-hmm. is that the whole supply chain is shrinking so that designers can actually go straight to the manufacturers and they can design just in time um, and almost yes. collab with their customers in real time about what they want. And that's shortening the whole the whole cycle. And they're actually only producing to what the customer wants. And therefore, mm-hmm. it's, I believe, you know, building into a more sustainable supply chain because they're just only producing what the customer wants, selling through that and going through that all over again. Do you think, would it be rational or fair to assume that clothing manufacturing manufacturing will not be something that we import? Um, that's a good question. I think that a lot of the big production and manufacturing will still happen overseas. Just from a costing perspective, that's still um, a really big piece of it is that sometimes it's a lot cheaper to do overseas. But I think to your point on the sustainable practices that, yeah, uh, consumers and brands are just so much savvier now. And fast fashion is just really scary to start thinking about how unsustainable that that world is just on the labor standards. And there was like a documentary um, I watched a couple of years ago that was really, really eye-opening. So I love to connect with brands that um, they're being really transparent. They're like, okay, this is our supply chain. We want to tell customers where we're sourcing everything from and, you know, down to the materials themselves. Mm-hmm as well. Fantastic. Have you um, ever spoken with or met the Queen of Raw? She goes by the Queen of Raw. Yes. She works on the... Yes. I haven't met her, but yeah. I've um, I've watched her on a couple different podcasts be- and uh, videos. And what, they, what she's doing, I guess, is trying to find uh, an avenue for fabrics that don't make it into the, the manufacturing process or something. Just brilliant. Yeah. It's like a marketplace, I think, for like the scraps, right? That, that come off of production yeah yes wholesale based uh fabrics that don't have kind of licensing agreements or something like that it's super genius i totally agree yeah what are some other startups that you are tracking or invested in that you find interesting in the space that that uh, listeners can pay attention to 
Yeah, there's one that I angel invested in called Thousand Fell, and they're building a fully recyclable sneaker. And what I kind of fell in love with is the the vision of building a circular economy. So we all buy clothes new, and it's still fun to do that, um, especially with shoes, right? You sometimes want to wear them new. And, you know, eventually with like a white sneaker, they get worn and torn and they get dirty. And what Thousand Fells has built is an ability to send the shoe back. And they have built a supply chain that is completely recyclable, you know, down to the every, you know, material that's part of that shoe. And they can rebuild that into a new one. So when you send your shoe back, you get a credit to get a brand new shoe. And they're coming out with new colors and styles and just really um, exciting new product lines. So I'm really excited about what them and the team are doing. And, you know, overall for the broader ecosystem, a lot of brands want to build a circular supply chain, but they don't always have the resources to do that. So Thousand Fell is also building partnerships with a lot of other brands to enable their their circular supply chain, which is really exciting. Wow, that that in itself is a whole nother discussion. Um, I am so excited by your excitement. We were going to talk a bit about Gen Z and such. Um, I just want to be kind of cognizant of time. Um, do you want to transition into the 99? I actually have a good way to transition. If, if we Can we skip the Gen Z for now? Sure. Yeah, no problem. So, okay. What we've just talked about here is fascinating from the standpoint of perhaps even kind of a social um, you know, workforce element um, behind how there may be trade-offs between sustainable products and, and that aspect. I'd like us to try to transition outside of um, your personal passion in fashion, which you've been very generous in sharing, and maybe try to transition toward the fund and this 99, 99% um, idea. So firstly, can you just kind of give listeners a clear, clear understanding of the thesis on the 99 again? Yeah. So when we think about the consumer VC for the 99%, we're thinking about who is the end consumer? And ultimately, how is the, the product or the service or the marketplace democratizing access for that consumer? And if it's a product, are they making it cheaper and better? And if it's a category, is it you know tech-enabled that is just completely opening up access in a way that has never existed before? So yeah, happy to start kind of digging into some um, examples with our portfolio. I would helpful. love it. Okay. Ab- absolutely. I'm going to pull up the sure. website as we speak as well. Okay, amazing. So yeah, the first check we actually wrote was into a celebrity marketplace called Cameo. And we got really excited about what they were doing because this was a couple of years ago. So before the creator economy was even a category. But what Cameo does, it's a marketplace where you can go on and you can search for any talent. Um, Sometimes they're well-known celebrities. Sometimes they're TikTok stars. They can be reality TV stars. And you can uh, get a personalized shout out. And it's really fun for gifting. You can get something that's really creative and you can really uh, personalize it based on what you want to have the, the talent uh, you know, express to the person you want to send it to. So they've been a really fun one. And kind of tying it back to the 99%, um, we saw that both sides, honestly, the supply and the demand is how we thought about it. On the supply side with the, with the talent, we were thinking about this as sometimes these these talent, they were more famous than they were rich, right? Sometimes they got really buzzy in a viral video and they weren't actually monetizing that, but they were getting millions of eyeballs. 
And what Cameo created was the ability for them to get booked to do personalized shout outs and actually choose their price around what they wanted to, um, you know, charge for that. So it's totally opened up the ability for the creators and the talent to monetize unlike ever before. And then on the demand side of things for consumers, you know, typically you had to like be in LA or New York to like stumble upon, uh, you know, a talent in the flesh, right? And it was, you were taking a selfie or, you know, you were getting an autograph, you know, there wasn't access to just go on and and pay for it um, to get that really personalized, fun, um, you know, digital experience. So that's what we got super excited about. They're actually doing um, cameo calls now where you can do Zoom sessions, right? And like talk to these people virtually. So there's just so many fun ways that the business is just going to continue innovating. And um, that's been a really fun one to watch. Fantastic. And uh, what are some other, a couple others from, from the portfolio to get you excited? Yeah, absolutely. So another, you know, early uh, investment we made was into a company called Maiden Cookware. And they're down in Austin and they're a direct-to-consumer cookware company. And kind of circling back again to the 99%, when we think about products, we saw immediately what they were doing with their supply chain and going straight to manufacturers was creating very high quality product at 50% of the typical cost. And we loved that that was completely white space, right? There were, you think about cookware and it's a, a category that has been around for, you know, years, but there really yeah. weren't modern brands at the time that were building a kind of new brand around that. Um, and early on, they they got some amazing celebrity uh, chefs around the table that were really authentic influencers, right? Some of the you know most famous chefs in the country were kind of re uh, merchandising their whole kitchens with made in cookware products, so they can be real authentic spokespeople for the quality of the brand. So we we love what they're doing, and they're again a really fun one to have been you know and still be on the journey with them. Fantastic. That, yeah, and um, I noticed there 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 are a lot of infrastructure types of companies in the portfolio. Can you help me understand maybe some of those that that have kind of a strong sustainability kind of advantage in your mind? Yeah. So let's see. We have a couple, you know, in the fintech space that have actually been really interesting from an infrastructure perspective. We have Zorro, mm-hmm. which is a credit building debit card. And what we got really excited about with them is that there was kind of this, um, you know, younger Gen Z, younger audience that they, uh, it's it's changing now, right? Instead of wanting to get a credit card and rack up this huge um, credit. With high interest rates. (laughs) With high interest rates. They want to kind of use cash, right? But we're not living in this cash world anymore. Um, And there's actually- Yeah, there's a lot that you need in life, you know, to have a credit score, right? Getting a car, renting an apartment or buying a home. I love, I love this idea. This is such a fantastic idea. Yeah. So we're really excited about what they're doing. And then another fintech, uh, you know, infrastructure play was Clover. And what they're building is the ability for completely interest-free, no credit check, uh, cash advances for people who you know, sometimes are living paycheck to paycheck and there's an emergency that comes up and they need $100 here in between. And they're creating the ability to do that. Um, and it's um, That's really exciting. exciting to see, yeah, how they've been able to take off. 
data is your new is the new collateral. That's an interesting description of it. I, that's an inter- that makes me very intrigued. <laughs> data is the new collateral. Okay, I like that idea. Yeah, it's fun. Thank and you then, for sharing this. Yes, thank you. Yeah, of course. And then I guess like another category that um, I'm particularly passionate about and excited through, you know, thinking through the the portfolio is uh, community. So there's been a lot that's starting to happen just in the ecosystem right now where these, um, you know, Facebook groups or Twitter threads or (laughs) Reddits um, are having these really like obsessive uh, communities that are popping up where people are really engaged in different conversations that are really ripe for replatforming to a verticalized experience. So we, we recently did an investment into a company called Avia, and they just launched a new site today, um, which has really been Fantastic. fun. Um, but what they're well, building- I'm definitely going to put a shout out there as well when we, when we announce the show. That's great. Yeah. They're, um, they're building a hormone health um, app and experience that is also oh. powered by a smart birth control case. So really nice. catering to you know young women who uh, are forgetful, right, to take birth control every day, and also um, there's been like a lack of education around just hormone health in general. So they're building a, a really amazing experience where you can track different uh, symptoms and patterns and insights just to get smarter or, around this, and then it's powered by this amazing community and um, expertly led by some real doctors and, 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 and advocates in the space and just kind of opening up the, the safety of a, of a community and space for these women to uh, talk to each other and lean on each other for support. So yeah, check them out. They have a really fun site that just launched today. Wow, that's fantastic. I, I'm, I'm really also excited about the, the um, community safety aspect. Obviously, the privacy thing is always really important as well, but there's also kind of that culture of safety aspect. I, I don't know if that's particularly a vertical or if, if you could even say that there's a set of companies that focus just on that. Um, but I, I do think that's such a such a valuable consideration. Yeah, no, and I think it's it's really early days still around new new categories that are building into that. But um, I totally agree. Yeah, I think um, for better or for worse, some of the big social networks are just um, at such scale right now, and they're not always safe spaces. And I, I think there's a lot of these, you know, vertical communities that are starting to bubble up to the surface that are new um, categories for for the next generation of of startups to go build into. So have been paying a lot of attention across that. Um, there's a lot within femtech. There's a lot within health and wellness. So it's really just building these like positivity first type of environments that yes. have just really cool content, rich access to, um, you know, connect with people across the world, really. Um, so I'm just really excited about the time period we're in right now. And again, the, the pandemic, I think that people are recognizing that you can connect so easily now, right? Via Zoom or these virtual chat rooms and Club, clubhouse. Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> that Big week that is an addictive platform. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I, uh, I think it's a really fun time to, to be a part of, you know, observing all the innovation that's happening right now in that world. Excellent. And you're, so you're talking about a community and organic traction, um, as we kind of, we, we outlined in the show, we're going toward organic traction. Um, what is we also talked in the pre-show what is direct to, to worker that was your your expression direct to worker can you tell us more about that 
Yeah. So yeah, that's kind of a new way that we've been thinking through uh, our thesis where we don't invest in a lot of B2B, you know, SaaS software. So sometimes, you know, B2B technology companies are selling products that sometimes, you know, the end consumer or the, the worker is using, but sometimes they're more, you know, at higher leadership levels. So we think about direct to worker as what are these new tools that are actually changing the, um, you know, the experience for the the everyday employee, right? Just as we think about everyday consumers. Um, mm-hmm. And I think we're still kind of fleshing out, you know, what that means to us and, and, and getting smarter about what different categories you want to go deeper into. But I think that, you know, working from home is just really switching up the dynamics. And I think there's just so many cool experiences that are uh, yet to be seen, right, <laughs> around reimagining the work from home workplace and um, connecting consumers to or connecting employees um, to each other, right, and, and innovative experiences. Yeah. So we think about the, the worker. Yeah, I like where you're where you're heading with this. I mean, I really appreciate you openly sharing some some of the developing ideas surrounding the thesis. That's really generous of you. Um, I do want to give a shout out to Joe Blair, who was uh, with Coda Capital. He was he had an episode about seven eight months ago on the future of work, and I'd really like like for you to listen to that and connect with him as well. Um, and to listeners as well, I I love this. Um, direct to worker idea in itself. It seems like it somehow falls kind of un, in the sphere of future of work, mm-hmm. but you're you're trying to create community surrounding worker. And I, I, are there some examples out there that we can kind of look look to, things like that? Yeah. I was actually going to say one of our portfolio companies, Suna, Aha, is yes. perfect um, for that. So they're building a, a platform for virtual content creation. And what you do is a, it's a brand, right? You always need new product and videos um, and photography to, to run ads or, or put on your site. And Suna's building a complete tech-enabled platform uh, for creatives to do these virtual photo shoots in tandem with the, the marketers or the people behind the brands themselves. Um, so that's really, you know, you know going to the direct-to-worker uh, on both sides, right? So Suna's built this incredible uh, community and network of creatives that are doing a lot of the photography, you know, out of their home, right? When we're in the pandemic hit, we were sending the equipment, you know, to their homes to create these little photo studios, right? And uh, it's crazy. And it's um, so fun because, you know, these these brands, they're able to uh, hop on and really feel like they're virtually part of the the photo shoot. And uh, it's so fun. And then all you do is just kind of pay and, um, choose the the assets that you want, whether that's videos or gifts or or photos. That that's quite fascinating. I haven't heard of actually kind of the 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 equipment direct to direct to creator equipment model. That is fascinating. That is so unique. Yeah. I mean, maybe it exists somewhere. I'm just maybe I'm trying to think <laughs> through it. For example, delivering a car for like an Uber or like a car rental company, something like that, sort of, but not really. It's more social. Yeah, ex- absolutely. And what are, what are the aspects of social tech? I also want to give a shout out, going to have a clubhouse session this Friday, and I would love you to attend um, with um, two founders with um, Own Trail. They're going to be discussing this uh, this new category of what they're calling authentic. And I'm really trying to promote that um, to t- help build build more diversity in terms of um, what social tech may look like and how we can kind of 
um, look at social tech in general. What are some other aspects um, of this like social consumer or social tech aspect that you find really interesting right now yourself? Yeah, I think again, tie it back to another portfolio company. <laughs> hey, no problem. That's the point. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we invested in a company called Mavely that's here in Chicago. Okay. And um, what they're actually building is the community around more like the micro everyday um, kind of influencer within their own social circles. So any it's really empowering anyone who is just obsessive over one of their favorite brands to earn by referring and sharing uh, products, you know, within their social circles. So we we love what they're being, you know, what the product is is able to do for these brands, right? Who just want to tap into like these authentic, um, obsessive like fan bases, right? For for the brands, yeah. and and Mavely's really empowering them to to do that. And I think that tying it back to community, and I guess I'm really one of the core um, customers, right? Is these these women or men, whoever you know, anyone? There's just real obsession when it comes to these brands that people are just living and breathing and using all the time. So instead of, you know, only allowing certain influencers to monetize um, from sharing those brands, maybe it's just creating the ability for anyone um, to earn by, by sharing. So we're Micro like, influencers. yeah. You you have been so generous here, and I am so excited to get you back onto the show if you're open to it. I just want to thank you for your time and your ideas and your your passion for everything you're involved in. And um, I just I so I just want to say thank you. But also, can you help listeners um, know how they can kind of follow your work and get in touch and things like that? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, on Twitter, how we initially met. Hey, um, there we go. I'm at Haley Quaid Solo. And then I'm on LinkedIn. I uh, We have our, our starting line website that you can meet and see more about the team. Uh, so yeah, any any way that you want to connect with us, we are just excited to, to get to know, you know, the listeners and some of the themes that, you know, I've talked about that we're spending a lot of time into any founders that are out there that are building into those spaces. We would love to meet you and um, connect and learn more about what you're working on. You heard it, everyone. Thank you so much, Haley. Thank you. This was a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. We've had amazing guests on the show, and I'm very grateful for all of your support. The show is now available also on Google. It's available on Amazon. It's available on pretty much all the platforms, iTunes. We would love any positive feedback you could give on iTunes especially. Leave us a review and keep listening. Appreciate it.